But the actual day of the martyrdom, only Willard and John were in the room with them. And so the whole thing, you know, happens within two to three minutes. Willard in his telling of it afterwards calls it, you know, two to three minutes. And they are the only two eyewitnesses of what actually happened in that room. And there's a ton of information that leads up to Carthage, everything that goes into Carthage, you know, before. And then there's books and books and many different opinions and ideas and historians can tell you all that of everything after. But that actual two to three minutes of the crime scene, that has not been studied in much detail, comparatively speaking. And really, it's only been the last two or three decades that it's been coming more and more to light. And that's what I found. When I saw this Carthage conspiracy video, I was like, what else is there out there? And began studying it. And there's all sorts of people who have opinions now because things are just more sophisticated now. And there's more information now. And you can see there's some amazing evidence that's been preserved all of this time. And what does it mean? Because it doesn't fit the eyewitness account. It's time for another episode of The Cultural Hall, and I know what you're thinking. Just by looking at the very title of this episode, you're thinking, what are we doing here? I just wanted to ask some questions. You may agree completely with what Justin has to say, and you may disagree completely with what Justin has to say. I just wanted to hear what Justin had to say so that I could form my own opinion. It's one of the things that I love about the Cultural Hall is that we are not afraid to talk to anyone, and I hope that that is what you appreciate about it. Uh, don't forget that you can always check out the video if you are a Patreon saint. Don't forget you can always find us on all the social medias at the Cultural Hall, and if you want to suggest other great episodes of the Cultural Hall, you can do that contact at theculturalhall.com. Let's let's just hear what Justin has to say in this episode of The Cultural Hall. It's time for another episode of The Cultural Hall, and I'm excited to see what comes of this episode. My guest, Justin Griffin, maybe that name doesn't mean anything to you, but you have probably seen his creations as they've been trending fairly recently uh, on the internet. Uh, the author, maybe? I don't know that that's the great way. Director, the curator, the researcher of sorts of the film Who Killed Joseph Smith uh, is here to talk with us. Justin, welcome into the Cultural Hall. Thanks, man. Did I give you uh, appropriate title, or, or do you prefer a better title than the uh, seven that I sloppily found my way through? It doesn't matter. Whatever title you give me, somebody is going to say, oh, I can't believe he called himself that. So... I'm fine with Justin. So I have to then think that probably what you're uh, what you're referencing is within the film "Who Killed Joseph Smith," which we'll get into. Uh, I think that you you um, name yourself a researcher, and I'm guessing that people have uh, some issue with the fact that you've called yourself a researcher. That's right. That was the the easiest name I could come up with. I didn't realize that was going to cause so many people so much heartache. So all of the researchers out there that I've offended by calling myself a researcher, sorry about that. Well, you're smart to have not called yourself an, an historian because <laughs> historian means that you needed uh, certain levels of schooling and various pieces of paper to certify that. So I think at least researcher is sort of a softer thing of all that. Yeah, historian doesn't work at all for me because this is not a story for historians. This is for, you know, detectives, uh, people that are used to looking at evidence, uh, crime scene 
uh, detectives makes more sense. A historian is not going to understand this story because all I really care about is the two to three minutes of the eyewitness accounts of what happened in that room. So a historian can't make sense of that with their normal methodology. So I want to uh, be very upfront with people uh, for the next almost hour that we'll chat. Uh, <coughs> there, there are a lot of things that we will talk about that people may react and go, this guy is up in the night or where's this guy coming from? Or, you know, what does it matter? And it's, and by myself having you here in the cultural hall, it's not to say whether or not I agree with you or disagree with you. I'm just curious to where you're coming from, to what prompted you uh, to make this film, Who Killed Joseph Smith? So I, before we get even into that, I'd like to know a little bit about you. Are, are you a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? Are you just fascinated with the church's history? Give me a little background information on you. Did you uh, watch the whole show? I did, in fact, but not everyone that is listening to this okay, will have listened to it. So I want to make sure that if they don't or if they do, that they get a, you know, a concept of who you are. Fair enough. So I uh, was born and raised in the church. <clears throat> Sorry. Uh, went on a mission to Greece, came back and went to BYU, graduated from BYU, got married in the temple, have three kids. Um about as normal as you can get as far as a normal LDS lifestyle. And then I made this movie, got really curious about this story and started looking into it, finding anomalies, wanted to get at the truth to myself. <clears throat> and I was excommunicated for it. So I was called in and, you know, asked about the movie and other things, and, which was weird because it was before the movie was even out. And the guys that were questioning me hadn't seen the movie, but for whatever reason, the fact that I made this movie, they said, no, you can't show it. I said, well, yeah, I definitely want to show it. I want to show what I found. I was excommunicated. So no longer a member of the church. So I call, I want... myself, I call myself a Mormon now. Hmm. As, as opposed to a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Yeah, I'm like, well, they, they got rid of that name. And so I'm like, I'm, I'm fine with that name. I want you to know, uh, certainly no judgment as far as that goes. I also have been excommunicated, but have been rebaptized and, and find myself in full fellowship as of this recording. And so I want yeah. you to know that, you know, no sort of judgment. It's just, I, I think that people go, hey, well, who is this guy? What is this guy that, you know, is telling the story? I have not ever, in all of the people that I've ever talked to about <laughs> serving missions, met anyone that I can recall that has served in Greece. Is it its own mission? It is. It, it was when I was there. It's since been closed down. And is that, that just mission. is that is that just because of like the responsiveness of the people there, or like culture, or why? Well, I don't know the church's reason for shutting it down, but it wasn't. I mean, when you're on that mission and you have buddies over in South America and you're comparing, you, yeah, you don't feel good about yourself. They're like baptizing a hundred people a month. And when I was on my mission, it was an average per missionary per mission of 0.5 baptisms for the whole two years. Oh. So you come home from Greece, maybe a little disenchanted with the mission, or were you like, no, listen, I tried my best. It just happened to be where I went and labored. Uh, I don't know about disenchanted. It was definitely not the same experience as other missionaries, but everyone's mission is crazy in one way or another. So, yeah. And then but yeah, I needed, I needed to, I needed to unwind a little bit after that experience for sure. And then how'd you meet your wife? At BYU. 
Okay. I'm telling you, it is the most normal story <laughs> and boring of all time. Okay. Well, so then maybe we'll fall into some of the more exciting things. What was it about um, the martyrdom of Joseph Smith that you first became interested in? So I've loved all things having to do with Nauvoo and Joseph since I went to Nauvoo when I was 17. and okay. just was super fascinated with all those things. And a couple of years ago, um, somebody sent me um, a video on YouTube called, called Carthage Conspiracy. And that was a fellow that went through, oh my goodness, the, the evidence doesn't quite add up what the eyewitness said. And he came up with his own new theory. And I was just like, what? How do you have new? How could there be a new theory about something that was settled so long ago? Mm-hmm. So that, that just you know, piqued my curiosity. And that's when I started looking into it. So going to um, Nauvoo as a 17 year old, I think that's maybe a little out of the norm. Was that a family trip or what was the No, it was, I went out with some friends that were a part of the uh, pageant out there. And uh, they asked if I wanted to go and be a part of it. I said, sure. So I was out there for two or three weeks or however long the pageant runs. So you were out actually uh, as a part of the pageant? Uh That's right. Now, from other folks that I have uh, had had the opportunity to visit about that, that's a unique experience because it's a lot of time. And if you've never been to Nauvoo, there's not like a lot of, you know, stuff around Nauvoo. You're sort of in Nauvoo and that's what Nauvoo is and being able to wake there by the, you know, by the riverside and be able to be there in the dawn of the day and the in the dusk of the day. Like it's a pretty unique experience for Nauvoo. Was that a like a testimony affirming? Was it? sort of irrelevant. You didn't care. You were 17 years old. No. Se- 17 years old. I think th- so. The family I went with was my Bishop at the time. And I think the reason my parents let me go was hoping I would have that kind of a, an experience, spiritual experience. And I did, man, it was everything and more. Tell me a little bit about it. So, you know, as a 17 year old, go back and you go, have you been to Nauvoo before? Uh-huh. So they have, you know, the main street, then you go down into the town where all of the original buildings were. And I went to Joseph's house and I remember I had to circle the whole thing to make sure that I had crossed his actual path. So that's kind of the way I approached it. Just being there where all of these original people that, you know, started the church were, it was, it was, it was amazing for me. And the pageant itself, of course, is very uh, amazing production and, you know, just getting to be a part of that watching that play again night after night i learned so much and made some great connections with other people that were there that loved joseph and Nago as well so it was just great it's a unique experience in that it's it is a major crossroads of the uh, community of christ the former reorganized church of jesus christ of latter-day saints and the mainstream brighamite church because like they own a good portion of it and the mainstream church owns a good portion of Nauvoo, and and they sort of play friendly, real friendly there, uh, to be able to give people the whole Nauvoo experience. But I didn't, I wasn't able to go there until I was I was much older, and so to kind of have that uh, that experience where I'm like, oh no, we work in collaboration with other churches to be able to tell our history, whereas maybe originally I thought, oh, you know, this is sort of the mainstream narrative about what Nauvoo is. Yeah, now that you mention it, when I was, man, I just realized this. When I was there, they had made a new proper burial um, 
tomb or whatever you call this big, nice granite uh, encasing for Joseph, Emma, and Hiram. Mm-hmm. And the one that's there today. And when I was there, they actually dedicated that. So I got to watch, you know, people from both churches speak. That's the first time I had ever been to something like that. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, the RLDS church, when they were speaking, I didn't feel anything. And then I think it was Elder Ballard when he got up and spoke. And then I just felt like, oh, man, this is this is me feeling the spirit now. So um, <laughs> that's super interesting. That, that plays such an important role in this movie is the burial and where the actual bodies were, how they were moved many times because they were afraid the Mississippi was going to creep up and, mm-hmm. you know, cause damage to, to the remains. And there it was. And I happened to be there at mm. that when I was 17 years old. That's some pretty cool foreshadowing. Yeah. Some people would say there's no such thing as a coincidence. So I want to ask you uh, the narrative around the martyrdom of Joseph Smith that most people uh, would be familiar with. Can you sort of recap it? So we sort of set the same page for everyone. You bet. So um, Joseph, um, I'll start a little bit earlier with the destruction of the press. The city council ordered the destruction of the Nauvoo Expositor Press because they were printing things that, you know, they thought was inflammatory and was going to cause problems in the city. They destroy the press. That ignites outrage from the surrounding communities. Um, they, they, want, they want Joseph, right? And um, in the end, they go. They, they surrender themselves to Carthage to answer for these charges. And during the trial, all of the other council members are left are let out because they pay bail, but they're not going to let Joseph and Hiram go. So they charge them with treason for having called out the Nauvoo militia to protect the city. It was a total trumped up charge. Never should have happened. But the problem with that charge is you can't bail out on it because it's a capital offense. Mm -hmm. That's what kept Joseph and Hiram in Carthage. So they said, we're going to go put you in this jail for three or four days till we can have that trial. If that trial would have happened for sure, those charges would have been dropped. But in the meantime, that held them in Carthage and Joseph and Hiram are like, we don't want to be held in Carthage. I mean, we're setting ducks here. We want to go way back in Nauvoo, but governor Ford um, promised them protection. So they said, okay. And they agreed and they went and they were in the jail and they made great friends with the jailer apparently because he transferred them to the upper floor which was his bedroom. So Joseph and Hiram were in that bedroom and they happened to be there with John Taylor and Willard Richards. Which, Willard which Richards, just a quick question. Yeah. What are they, what are John Taylor and Willard Richards in jail for? So they're not in jail. They just came to support those two, you know, defend them, help them through that experience. There was a ton of different people that were coming in and out of that room for those couple of days. Apparently it wasn't that difficult to get in and out of the room. But the actual day of the martyrdom, only Willard and John were in the room with them. And so the whole thing, you know, happens within two to three minutes. Willard, in his telling of it afterwards, calls it, you know, two to three minutes. And they are the only two eyewitnesses of what actually happened in that room. And there's a ton of information that leads up to Carthage, everything that goes into Carthage, you know, 
before. And then there's books and books and many different opinions and ideas and historians can tell you all that of everything after. But that actual two to three minutes of the crime scene, that has not been studied in much detail, comparatively speaking. Mm-hmm. And really, it's only been the last two or three decades that it's been coming more and more to light. And that's what I found when I saw this Carthage conspiracy video. I was like, what else is there out there? And began studying it. And there's all sorts of people who have opinions now because things are just more sophisticated now. And there's more information now. And you can see there's some amazing evidence that's been preserved all this time. And what does it mean? Because it doesn't fit the eyewitness accounts. Everyone agrees that the eyewitness accounts given from John Taylor and Willard Richards can't possibly be true. They cannot be accurate. So right off the bat, you'd say, well, at most crime scenes, every eyewitness account, none of them are are fully accurate. And that's fine. That's fine. So you take their witness account with the evidence, you put those two things together and you try and come up with your theory about what happened at the crime scene. And there's a bunch of theories out there now and they're fascinating. And they're from people from all different walks of life and background. So one of the things I wanted to do in the movie was get those theories on the screen so people could see, here's what here's what people are talking about right now as far as what really went down there. So pause, because I want to get into those, but I want to make sure that we kind of set the standard as to what we're comparing it to. So if I recall correctly, what happens is, is they're like, oh, there's noise downstairs. And it's like, oh, the mob, they're going to get in. And it was Hiram who was shot first. In the, this is in the mainstream narrative of, of what occurred, that it was Hiram that was shot first. Joseph runs to uh, to Hiram, and then he jumps from the second-story window, and sometime between him standing up and getting to jump out the window, uh, and also from within the room, he gets shot from inside the room, and also from those that are down below, falls, and then that's sort of the demise uh, of Joseph right. and Hiram, Right. Not bad, man. And somewhere in there, someone with a watch gets shot, right? Right, right, right. And <laughs> you get yeah. all the main details. And, one's, and one slides under the bed. That's John Taylor. That's right. And then Willard Richards not shot at all, if I remember correctly. Depends. He says he wasn't in one account, and then another account he says he was. Okay. So, so just loosely basing, you know, how we kind of know the narrative to be mob shouldn't have got in, mob got in. Hiram uh, was shot first, Joseph Smith subsequently afterwards, and then fell from the second story window. And then everyone in town, you know, in the days thereafter, find out that a mob got into uh, Carthage jail and that they were killed. Not any one particular uh, mobster, (laughs) that's probably not the term we would use here, but not any one particular person charged with with shooting Joseph or Hiram or or anyone within that... um, and then they were laid to rest, and then the church didn't have a leader for a couple of years. That is that is a crude retelling, but is that fairly spot on? Yeah, not bad at all. Okay. So what I want to do then is I want to take a break, and when we come back in the second block, I want to get into what you started leading into, which is, all right, so here are their, what their accounts of the two to three minutes are, and what maybe some of these other conspiracies uh, are purporting, and and then the why. Why would it matter if that, you know, what those particular people are saying is true? How would that change? What does that mean, etc.? We'll come back and do that in the second block of the Cultural Hall. 
In addition to recording this here show and putting it out week over week over week, I've been doing this for over 11 years now, and it has become part of my life that I will teach others how to do the same. Now, not necessarily the same as the cultural hall, but if you are interested in doing a podcast, you've thought, oh man, you know what, I've got this great idea. Uh, I do help folks in a couple different ways. Uh, One is I teach a class. It's got curriculum and assignments and the whole deal uh, that I can be able to help you walk through through as you are looking to start a podcast, uh, or if you're looking for someone to help edit, help uh, produce, help uh, you know consult on a weekly basis with your podcast, you can also reach out to me. And the best way probably, honestly, to do that is if you find me, Richie T. Stedman, on any social media, that is a great way, or you can always just email us, contact at theculturalhall.com. Would love to help you out. Would love to talk to you about your idea. Would love to see if it would be something that uh, we could put into to, uh Emotion. Let's do it. I almost said put into practice. That doesn't make sense. Uh, send me an email, contact at theculturalhall.com. Hey, friends, Dan the Laptop Man from PC Laptops. As you know, there's been a huge video card shortage for computers. We have tons of NVIDIA and AMD video cards right now available with complete systems. Check us out right now at PCLaptops.com. Here in the second block of the Cultural Hall, I strongly urge you to become a Patreon saint of the Cultural Hall. You go to patreon.com forward slash the Cultural Hall. It's how you're able to see the glorious background of Justin uh, on this Zoom call. You can see the great logo that they did for the film, uh, a brick wall that I'm assuming to be a real brick wall and not necessarily a faux brick wall, but I don't know. And don't ruin it for me. Uh, but you can't see those videos if you don't become a Patreon saint. It's patreon.com forward slash the cultural hall. And don't forget, you get to be a part of that secret but not sacred Facebook group for everyone who becomes a member. So, Justin, uh, there, there then uh, are obviously those theories that come about. In the Carthage conspiracy, that first thing that you were sent, what, what did that purport? What, what was the message of that particular thing that you were sent? Okay, so... Great example. So there's supposedly about 150 to 200 mobsters that came and a bunch of them ran up the stairs and were shooting through the door. And while others were down outside shooting through the window, you remember that part? Mm -hmm. If your friends ran up the stairs to get them through the door, why on earth would you be shooting through the window at these guys knowing your friends were entering that room? So right off the bat, it's like, well, that doesn't make any sense. And I mean, really, if you were there to just shoot them up and you had no problem shooting up, the whole, everyone's staying outside, 200 dudes with their muskets letting loose. I mean, you would have destroyed everything. So why would you send your friends in and then shoot at your own friends? That makes no sense. Second of all, second of all um, Hiram was standing, according to the eyewitnesses, about two-thirds of the distance of the room back from the door when he was shot in the face from a from a door shot, and at the same time, he was also shot in the back. Well, that shot in the back, you can see exactly where it hit him because of the holes in his clothing. And that went all the way through his body and hit the watch in his front vest pocket. That line is parallel. So it's it entered it in his lower back and would have exited out of the front and the same height. Now, how is that possible if the shot came from the ground and this was on the second floor? What should have happened if that was the case is wherever it entered, it would have been an angle going upwards and exited higher than where it entered. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, because they yeah people would have been on the ground in its second story, so trajectory would have told me that it would have gone up. That's right, and it okay. didn't. So that's a question. Second of all, Hiram was facing the door, which is offset the window. So somehow when it hit him in his back, it should have entered his back and exited out of his side, but it didn't. So it had to have changed angles and gone forward to exit out of the front. So somehow there was no upper trajectory and the angle changed from back to front. So the main, the guy who did that video, that's what he was asking was, how is this possible with the angles that he got that shot from outside of the jail? And so, so there's other people that have theorized about that. And they say, if you're back far enough, 60 to 70 feet, then those angles work. If, if Hiram was scooted a little bit more towards the window and turned towards it, then at 60 to 70 feet, the rise wouldn't have been enough to been able to make a big difference. And so it's like, so the fellow who came up with that theory, I'm like, okay, from 60 to 70 feet, how many shots would you have to take with a musket to hit accurately like that? And he's like, maybe one in 10 would have made it through the window. Hmm. And I was like, exactly. So if one in 10, that means all of the shots around the window in the stone should still be preserved. So I capture that in the movie. That's the first thing when I went to Carthage. First thing is walk up and look at the window and look, is there any evidence of, you know, musket balls hitting that stone around the window? There was nothing like that. So something is wrong right, right there. You can tell something's wrong with the eyewitness account. The evidence on the building and, you know, on Joseph or on Hiram doesn't add up. So a question that I would immediately ask is, so the church hasn't repaired anything from the outer form of the building in the time? No, okay. no. On the inside, yes. On the outside, no. The windows, I'm sure, have been replaced. So some people argue, well, the window seals could have been all shot up. And I'm like, the window seals like that thick. There's no way all of the muskets that missed only hit the window seal. They would have been peppering the outside of that window, and none of that was repaired. Okay. It's the same stone. Go look at it. It's the same outer shell that's been there since the beginning so then if it's if the idea is that you know the 60 to 70 feet okay that's one possibility the other possibility is that what someone in the room was shooting him from that close well remember so according to eyewitness accounts he was shot in the face fell backwards and landed on his back and so they say there's no other time he could have been shot in his back, except it came through the window. It's not like the mob came in and did a shot in his face and a shot in the back at the same time. Because right. once he landed on his back, he didn't move again. So where else could that shot to his back have come from? If not, if he was facing the door, how did he get shot in the back? So obviously then trajectory would teach me and that, and, and then, you know, the idea would be, well, then potentially came from the room. That he was in someone in the room someone in the okay. room possibly if someone was in the room standing behind him and shot him in the back that wouldn't have been a mobster right the mobsters were all at the door yep it and they were pushing the door open and it only got open so much and they were firing into it so how would he have been shot back from someone in the room well and i also think that there would be a different impact if he was shot close range as opposed to you know far distant range with that as well mm-hmm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So all these questions. So what? So how do we think that right. that could have been? Right. So most people are like, eh, who cares? But I was like, what? <laughs> this this does not make sense. So I, for whatever reason, that just put that 
lit that bug in me that said I had to get to the bottom of this. So you get this video. I'm assuming it's probably within the time frame. I'm thinking it's probably a YouTube video or someone sends you like a VHS in the mail and is like, open yeah, this up it, and I hope you have a, v- a VCR. <laughs> it's it's on YouTube. It was posted 2016, but it was actually taken on VHS from the early 90s and it was super crappy quality mm. and it cuts in and out and important spots. So I tried to track that guy down. No one would respond on the YouTube. Mm. But I found John. John, I was a good friends with. He's in the film. And he said, yeah, I know that. I know that group. But and then we started talking about it. And he had his own theory, which he had come up with in the early 90s. Again, he he has thousands of documents of the original documents, of everything surrounding Carthage. And he had come to a similar theory early that something didn't add up with the story that was told there. So. Now I had the video. Now I had a new friend telling me all these new ideas. I mean, I was hooked. So if it's something that didn't add up, I think that there's there are some things in life where we just go, yeah, something doesn't add up and I'm trying to figure it out. So it, it obviously didn't settle well with you because you continued to persist in this project. What happened next? So I'm, um, I helped um, Steve, who's the filmmaker, with another project. And he invited me over to his house and we were eating. We were talking about uh, different projects coming up. And I was like, he was like, man, I really want to do something on Carthage. And I was like, what? I want to do something on Carthage. I've been looking at all this other Carthage. He's like, let's do it. But I didn't, I, at that point, I really didn't know very much other than there was a bunch of questions and inaction. And I was like, instead of just telling the story of Carthage, let's, let's look into this and like recreate it and really, really do this thing right. And he was like, okay. And so I told him about the theory that I had seen in that Carthage conspiracy. And he was just like, what? <laughs> because again, you you never knew that there was a question about any of this. I mean, it's almost 200 year old story. You just assumed it was, that story has been told. So we started looking into it. And as we got a little bit deeper into it, um, we promised ourselves we're going to go interview people. We're going to talk this through. We're going to research it as best we can. And whatever we come up with, that's what we're going to show. And we said, okay, cool. So, I mean, I was ready to get to the bottom. Is that guy up in the night who was telling his theory or were the two eyewitness accounts not wrong, but still you could explain him a different way. We didn't know when we started what the answer was going to be. So that all came through the, through the course of researching this all out and looking into it building our own set, you know, moving actors around in it to try and recreate through all of that. You know, that's how this theory was born. Was it something that became consuming in your life? Meaning uh, you talked about until the film sort of started to come together, that that was when you were brought uh, to, you know, to have your membership in the church discussed. Was it something that sort of permeated other parts of your life? Like, Hey, this, you know, there's this narrative and, and it's not, yes. you know, really adding up to what the other things are. There other things that I, that I don't know completely about, or maybe people aren't, aren't being honest or, or whatever term you want to use. Yes. Simultaneously with realizing that the story about the martyrdom isn't a hundred percent accurate. Then I started um, also studying motive and it's really difficult to understand motive behind Carthage without understanding polygamy. And I started becoming aware of the fact 
that, you know, most people in the church believe that Joseph practiced polygamy, but there's this growing uh, group of people who, after doing their own research, have started believing he never he never practiced polygamy. He was completely against it and taught against it. So these ideas were coming forth at the same same time as you know the story of Carthage is not accurate. So. And and that's a group of people. If I'm if I know my sort of factions and groups, that is are those the snufferites that believe that he never practiced polygamy, or is that a different group? Um, no, it's well the snufferites don't believe that either, but it's. It's like, like I was on another podcast and the uh, fellow said 20 to 30% of the current Elias church doesn't believe that Joseph practiced polygamy. Hmm. And I think I was like, it can't possibly be that big, but I think there's a lot of people that just don't know. Yeah. Like growing up, I didn't know that. Um, I think it was rough stone rolling come out. First time where I was like, "What? You have fifty yeah. wives? I didn't know that." Yeah, and I don't know if you remember reading that, but it's just like, ah, it's rough. But no, pun so there intended, are, the, of course. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I had watched in my neighborhood and in my life friends and family that were leaving the church when they found out that Joseph practiced polygamy, mm-hmm. and not just practice it, but with young girls, and you know all of these different conspiracies that he was uh, hiding. And that was a big catalyst for people to leave the church. And when they left, they left everything, you know, well, if Joseph wasn't a prophet, then all of it, God can't be real. Right. And they went on to live their lives. And I had seen that happen so many times that I think that was a motivator to figure out what am I going to say to them? They, they seem better researched than me on it. So yeah, all of these things are happening at the same time where I want to get my answers to to this and come to find out, thankfully, it's the greatest thing ever. Joseph didn't do it. He did not. He was framed for polygamy. Well, let me ask you that uh, uh, around that. I think the church that is the mainstream church has, has essentially, um, I don't know if admitted is the right word, but sort of, you know, talks about the fact that Joseph Smith uh, practiced polygamy. What, what would be what would be the thing for them to gain by, you know, saying that yeah, he did in fact introduce polygamy and and that that would be around or put a different way, like why why would they try and and hide that he didn't? So when Joseph was killed and Hiram was killed and Samuel died not too long after that, the leadership of the future of the church was up for grabs. And that's split between three or four different main factions. Mm-hmm. And of course, those who followed Brigham and came West practiced polygamy. And so the debate rages on which of the four or which of all of these different breakoffs are the correct one. Right. If you're trying to prove that you're the correct one, what you want to say is whatever you believe is what Joseph did. So it makes it look for the Brighamite church pretty bad to say, well, we practice polygamy, but Joseph was completely against it. Hmm. I mean, you can see how that hurts your case. So I can see why, you know, they would do the best they possibly can to make it look like, no, Joseph is where polygamy started and Joseph lived this. So us by living this are the ones who are, you know, we've chosen the correct group. So we, we got a little distracted and I want to get back to it. If 
Uh, if Carthage didn't happen, and I know that you want people to watch the film, there will be a link to it in the show notes so that people can check it out. But if Carthage didn't happen the way that the the mainstream narrative uh, dictates that it did, how do you suppose? And I know you go into great evidence within the film, and you're able to discuss different theories and stuff like that. But to give sort of a brief synopsis as to what you feel like occurred or why it occurred that way, or why there's enough question to, to consider something else. Let's walk down that path a little bit. Well, I think it was an inside joke. I think that the um, members of the 12 that were practicing polygamy secretly were about to all get called out for it by Joseph. So they had to figure out how to take him and hire him out. And I think John Taylor and Willard Richards were sent to Carthage on purpose to babysit this situation. I think that there was a mob that came earlier in the morning, the day of the martyrdom, about 12 midnight, was the first time a mob came up. And this time they were up the stairs, and this account was told by Dan Jones. You could hear him talking through the wall about what they were going to do, come in, get him, whatever. And Joseph called something out to them, like, come on in, we're ready for you. And it spooked them off. So the governor had promised their protection in Carthage. And here, this mob was coming to cause problems. So that next morning, Joseph sends Dan Jones out to go figure out what's going on so that they can at least tell, alert people, we are not safe waiting for our trial in this particular facility. Dan Jones is not let back into the room. Now, all that's left of all the men that had come in and out of that room is Joseph, Hiram, John Taylor, and Willard Richards. And now the second mob comes. And the second mob, I think, because Dan Jones overheard in the town the remnants of the mob from that previous morning talking about hanging Joseph. I believe they were coming to grab him and hire him and take them and hang them. So they were not prepared when they came to Carthage for Joseph and Hiram to be armed. They were like, I'm not doing this. I didn't sign up to get into a gun fight with these guys. How the heck did these prisoners get guns? When they realize that, they're hightailing it, you know, out of Carthage. That's when John Taylor and Willard Richards are like, you know what? Two mobs in one day. Joseph's going to get moved out of here. He's going to get moved to a safer place. He's going to survive through this. And our whole plan is going to get brought to light here. Hmm. So I tried to portray that in the movie, that he was torn about it i'm sure that they wanted the mob to take care of it but when they didn't they had to make a split second decision to take them out in this scenario in a way that they could blame it on the mob. so i know that's harsh to hear man but that's what the inside theory is this is an inside organized effort for those who are practicing polygamy to take joseph and Hiram and get them out of the way because otherwise he was going to excommunicate all of them so if this is the first time you're hearing this, I know that it's a big shock and, you know, it is what it is. I'm hoping to make as strong a point as I can so that you don't just blow it off. Oh, that's an interesting conspiracy theory or whatever. Who cares? Everything rests on this story. Was it an inside job or was it the mob? And there is enough evidence that I present alone and there's other evidence outside of that that you should do the work to figure it out. And I'm not saying you have to do it yourself. I'm inviting the church. Put your best teams together. Let's bring in actual detectives. Let's put money towards this and figure out what really happened here. 
that's one of the goals of putting this movie out is to get people interested in it again so we can solve it. Not because it's like JFK. You know, the nation is obsessed with figuring out who murdered JFK. Why? It's not because it's just a who done it. It's because of the implications hmm. of who did it. It's not, oh, this random guy or that random guy. What if it was a government conspiracy that took him out? Well, the ramifications of that are much different than if it was a single shooter acting on his own. Same thing with this theory with Joseph. If it was an inside job, the implications are impossible to deny. And your life will change if that's the case. I want to take another break. When we come back in the third block, I've got several questions that I want to ask you. And then uh, a question that we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall. I'll ask that of you coming back in the third block of the cultural hall. Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. Oh, hey, is this seat taken? My name is Kurt Franken from the Leading Saints podcast, and it's about time I make it to the back row of the Cultural Hall and tell you what's happening. Your friends over at Leading Saints are organizing another virtual conference, and this time we're talking about how do we lead the rising generation. We're calling it the Young Saints Virtual Conference. That's right. How do we lead 12-year-olds and beyond into church and even the young adults? They live in a different world than many of us when we were young, and they face unique challenges. So we've gathered 20-plus presenters who have a unique experience working with youth and finding success. To get all the details and to see who is speaking and what topics will be covered, visit leadingsaints.org youth. You can find the link in the show notes or simply visit leadingsaints.org youth. Here in the third block of the Cultural Hall, remember you can always interact with us wherever you do your social media. It's at the Cultural Hall. You can also always email us, contact at theculturalhall.com. Would love to get your feedback about this episode. Uh, Even if you're like, that guy is crazy. What did you do? Why did you invite that guy in? You can email us that. That's fine. You don't ha- just because Justin's here, it doesn't mean you have to believe it. Doesn't mean you have to don't have to believe it. I'm just presenting it and asking the questions that I feel like if someone sees that uh, there is a, a movie about who killed Joseph Smith and it's something different, I'm walking out the questions that you may have about that. So contact at theculturalhall.com or find at the cultural hall wherever you do social media. So let me ask you this about that. The Saints' life was incredibly. Uh, difficult after the martyrdom of Joseph Smith being forced out of Nauvoo and forced west and forced west and forced west. To me, at some point, I would think, kind of walking out your theory and then uh, applying my own personal sort of feelings towards it, like at some point, I think they would have been like, nah, forget it. We weren't with them. We want to stay right here. And and then that wouldn't have driven them all the way to the west as far as you know polygamy and being able to cover all that stuff up. Uh, unless they felt like it was called of God. What say you about that? Well, what was so difficult after the martyrdom? I mean, they didn't leave Nauvoo for another year or two. What will tell me what was so difficult? I mean, you consider the certain percentage of people that died going West that didn't know what they would get. No, that was difficult. I'm saying it was a couple of years after the martyrdom before they left West. 
What was so difficult in that time? Well, I, I would argue maybe what um, several people didn't know uh, who who was in charge. And so there was the different factions saying, hey, no, follow yeah. us here. That would be like, spiritually oh, difficult. Yeah. The mob kept coming and harassing them all. That's not true. That's not true. They weren't harassed anymore. After Joseph and Hiram were gone, nothing like that. So it's like the story was told that they were chased out of Nauvoo in the dead of night across this frozen water. And it's that's not the case. So a question for you. Do you have any idea about how many people were in Nauvoo at its peak? At that at that time, the number that comes to my brain that I don't actually have any idea if is accurate or not is 11,000. But I actually have no idea. Yes. Good guess. It's about 14 to 15,000. And different opinions from different people on that, about fourteen to 15,000. And most of the people lived in shacks and shanties and lean-tos and dugouts and things like that. That's a lot of people in that town. When you right. went, I mean, I think the tour guide told us there was a couple hundred, you know, homes that were built there. And I'm like, a couple hundred homes. How on earth did that house 15,000 people? Right. And that's when I found out, no, that was the core, but there was people all around. Now. Here's the big question. Out of that 15,000 or so people, how many of them went west with Brigham? Uh, if I remember sort of the statistics that I would roll out in my mind, like a third, so like 5,000? Yeah. Well done. So about 5,000. What are the other 10,000 doing? They don't feel any pressure to go that way. They don't feel harassed by mobs. I mean... Emma stays behind. Joseph's mom stays behind. Tons of people stay behind. Isn't that interesting? I never really realized that. So really where the church going west gained its big numbers is all of the immigrants flooding in from, from England, right. which is where Brigham and others served their mission. That's the guys. And, and this part, I, I absolutely agree with you. Their trek west was horrible. I mean, mm -hmm. some of the most trying circumstances that anyone could go through. Absolutely. But I, but I wanted to make the point that after the modern, I mean, it's not like they were being harassed. They weren't forced to go west. There's other reasons why Brigham wanted them to go west. And we're going to talk about that, hopefully, in part two. So as you walk out the conspiracy theory that it would be an inside job, is the thought because Brigham Young becomes the prophet after the prophet Joseph Smith, that it was orchestrated by Brigham Young? Um, I think for sure he was involved. But but not necessarily like the like the uh, the head of said movement. He was for sure involved. And <laughs> but again, this I mean, there's millions of people who've looked into this sure. and studied this, and so you can't just be flipping about throwing out. Here's what happened. Here's what sure. didn't. That's why part two is taking some time. Because I don't want to make any claims in that film that can't be solidly backed up. I don't mind if they're controversial and go against the mainstream, but I want to be able to back up why, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, at, at least to be able to point to something and say, here's why I think this. Because the fact right. of the matter, Justin, is is that someone else can listen to this or watch this film and be like, no, Justin's wrong, and here's right. why. Or have that feeling, right? And they can be able to, if they can be able to point towards things, whether or not you agree with them or not, I think, I think in the time that I've had the opportunity to get to know you, I think that you are at least open-minded enough to the person to be yeah. like, okay, yeah, maybe that could be that other thing. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Which is why I was hoping that more people would come with theories 
okay, here's the film. What do you think happened? I thought we would be discussing evidence. Well, I didn't like Justin the way that you interpreted this piece. Great. How do you interpret it? Right. But it's not been that at all. It's been, you're not a historian. You're not a researcher. You don't know. And I'm like, okay, I, I agree. I'm not a historian. What do you think about the actual theory? Well, the theory doesn't matter. It can't happen. That's impossible. I'm like, really? Can you explain to me how this shot through the... They no, no one's doing that. Hmm. And the reason why they're not is because it's going to take more time. It took me a year full-time working this all out. So I said, you know what? I'm going to be patient. You guys go do whatever you need. I'll help support however I can. Take six to 12 months. Let's reconvene and talk this through. So we can talk about the actual evidence. That's what this film that just came out is all about, is the evidence in that two to three minutes. But the next film, that will be all the history. That'll be, you know, I'll get creamed by historians and that I'm that I'm okay with. But on this one, I'm like getting creamed by people who don't even talk about the evidence. It, it doesn't it doesn't stick with me. I have to think that somewhere in the world, there is someone that's like the things that Justin Griffin got wrong and that that's going to, that that's going to come out. And the thing is, I think you welcome that. Absolutely. And in fact, the guys who are the most capable of doing that, I put them all in the movie (laughs) and I'm like, you know, if the church wants to lead a team of guys to look further into this, they need to go to Sam Weston. Sam Weston knows more about it. He taught me more about Carthage than any other single person. Unfortunately, the Lyon brothers have passed away. They would have been a great resource as well. And the last theory with Gary Smith, he's still around as well. Great guys for them to you know, have on their team to look into these things. So, Justin, I want to ask you, and this, is, this may get a little bit personal, so you're more than welcome to throw up a flag and say, now forget it. So when you get the opportunity to uh, be called in uh, by leaders of the church to say, hey, what are we doing here, pal? What was that? scenario like can you give me an idea of like so like when i was excommunicated it was impropriety with uh people who weren't my spouse right that was what i was excommunicated for they they have to at least to my knowledge give some sort of grievances was it that you were leading people away from the church was it yeah conduct done becoming a member and so when they brought the movie up i said have you seen the movie and they were like no but I decided to be honest about it. And I was like, look, here's what it, they said. What is it about? Because they had heard the word on the street that I was making a movie implicating Brigham Young for the murders of Joseph and Hiram, mm-hmm. which is sort of true. But at the same time, Hiram's not mentioned in the film at all. So it was obvious when they said that, that they, they didn't know. They were just listening to these rumors. So they said, what's the film about? And I said, oh, it's about Carthage, about explaining the three to five, you know, this couple minute period. And the evidence, and I show all the different theories, including the churches. And at the end, I show my theory. And I said, you're not going to like my theory. I was honest. I didn't go through it because I was waiting for the movie to come out. But I was like, you're not going to like it. And they said something along the lines of, you're purposely making something that makes people question their faith in the church. Hmm. And I I hadn't thought about that. But I was like, yeah, you're right. You're right. This will make people question their faith in that church. Was choosing Brigham the right choice? It's going to make you question that. So how do you feel about that? I I have in an old journal of mine, the moment that I was excommunicated, you know, I sat down and wrote sort of my intentions to be able to find myself back in the church and, 
and yeah. and why I felt like that was important and what things I felt like I'd done wrong and things that I could do better and you know sort of had a an all out um writing fest um that that sort of explored where I would be in my future self uh it took me 10 years to be rebaptized and find my way back into the church but but I did in fact do it is that something that matters to you or at this point is it something that you go well, you know, maybe it's not what I thought it was, and 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 maybe no, I was not. I was not happy about being excommunicated. I would way rather have stayed in the church and run a team of guys to go figure out this research. Um, I get the church has changed their narrative, and you know, in in the book The Saints, we have the most current version of the martyrdom. And it, it doesn't seem right that the church can change their narrative, but I got, you know, in trouble for, for offering up a different theory as well. It just doesn't seem, uh, it doesn't seem right to me, but I wanted to reconcile. We asked, what do you need? You know, what do you need from us to stay members of the church? And, they and when said, you say us, you mean you and. And I were excommunicated, okay. Okay. excommunicated at the same time. I said, what do you need? And they said, you know, one of the things is you cannot show this film. And so we said, can you give us a day or two to think this through and pray about it and make a decision? And they said, no, you're done. So I didn't want to get into the details of this because people claim that I'm trying to make myself a martyr. I'm not. It is part of the story, unfortunately, but I don't blame these guys. It felt to me like you know, someone above them told mm -hmm. them, you got to go do this because I thought the conversation was going fine. I really thought that they would have given me a day or two to search my soul and figure out and to reconcile, you know, these people that I love that I've been a part of my whole life versus this film, but I didn't get that chance. So in the future, if they offer me that chance again, same thing, I'll go pray about it. If the Lord says, go back into the church, then yeah, I'll do that immediately. Without her being able to represent herself, uh, I don't know if this question is appropriate, but it comes to my mind. It seems that this is sort of your life's work and mission. Is it your wife just being a unified front with you? Or is this something that she has been with you every step of the way to sort of cultivate this idea that, hey, maybe what we're being told isn't what actually happened? Well, that's a great question. Um, yes, we together are people who are willing to ask questions and take our conclusions to the Lord and be led by his spirit. Mm -hmm. But she she was a producer on this film with me and supported me. But she's done her own stuff. So if you go look at her online, you'll see some of the productions that she's come up with. She's way cooler than I am. She'll be the one that you really <laughs> want on your show. So, Well, it, it's been a fascinating discussion. I know if people have made it this far that they appreciate your candidness and being able to share not only what happened to you personally and within the church, but certainly what you, what you feel like, hey, there may be something to this and, and maybe take a, a greater look at it. And I appreciate um, very much, not only your willingness to share your time, but also your openness to like, Hey, if you feel like I got it wrong, man, tell me, let's, let's have a discussion about where I got it wrong. If people wanted to be in contact with you, where would be the best place that you would send them to do that? Just go to the website who killed Joseph Smith.com. And there's a way to reach out to us on there. And, and we uh, have a Facebook page who killed Joseph Smith. And people come on there and comment. Yeah, I, I bet they do, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, you'll you'll see it's it's divided between those who believe Joseph practiced polygamy and those who don't. 
Uh, the final question that we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall, we ask you to interpret it however you may. But the question remains, what is your favorite part of your faith? Favorite part of your faith. So what I've learned is difference between what I used to believe faith was and what I believe it is now. I used to believe that faith meant clenching your fists and just gritting out even harder to make something happen. For instance, I was on my mission and we had finished appointment a little bit earlier and it was dark and rainy outside. And we were trying to get a bus on the way home and we were freezing and we were like, we got to have the faith for a bus to come right now. And so we faithed as hard as we could and no bus came. And we're like, we got to faith harder. Yeah. We, and no bus came. That's not faith. What I've learned that faith is, is what Nephi taught his two brothers. Faith is to go to the Lord and ask your questions, to seek him, and then wait for his responses. Whatever his responses are, you got to follow that. And in the beginning, when you first start seeking the Lord, he's going to tell you in your life things you need to get rid of that are causing a block between him and you. For me, one of the first things that I had to get rid of was a super fast sports car. Hmm. Church didn't tell me I needed to get rid of that. The scriptures didn't tell me I needed to get rid of that. The spirit said, you bought this thing out of pride. And I agreed. And I got rid of the sports car. It was difficult. But on the other side of that decision, I had an increase in the spirit and an increased connection to the Lord. My trust and faith in him grew because I knew that he was looking out for me. And my best interest, and even if he asked me to do something difficult, it's for the best in the long run. That's what this journey has done for me, is it has brought me to my knees to rely on him. And that's what I want this film to do. Make it question on a deep level so that you don't just rely on man or rely on yourself, but you go to your knees and you ask the Lord, Lord, what am I supposed to do with this information? Can you direct me? That relationship is everything. And faith is learning how to ask and receive answers for him, and then work on those answers. That's what brings us closer to him. That is what I love about faith, is my relationship with the Lord is stronger now than it's ever been. Yeah. Well said. I appreciate that, Justin. We hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week, and that when the time comes, you'll be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, Debbie Wanless, Rick McGee, Brother Brent, Chocolate Cake Bites Podcast, and Miracles... I told you so. We'll be saving a seat for you on the back row of the cultural hall. Save me a seat. It's sure to be neat. On the back row, we read.